1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for that song that we just sang. That though our sins are many, your mercies are more. Father, it amazes us that when you had a choice of when and how to speak of your character, when Moses asked to see your face, um, you proclaimed that you are a God who favors mercy. Father, you proclaimed that you are a God of justice, that you would visit the sins of the fathers on the second and the third generations, but you said that you are a God who delights to show mercy to the thousandth generation. Father, we come before you and we thank you that what is on offer in the gospel is forgiveness, is mercy. Father, we thank you so much that we have been able to come through this liturgy to this place where we hear your word And it is right that we would come with a clear conscience, not because we are women and men who have not sinned, but because we have confessed what you have already said is true about us, and you have reminded us that Christ has paid the price for our sins. Father, I pray that we together would relish in gratitude and thanksgiving that we are forgiven, that we stand before you as your daughters and your sons, that we stand before you as those who have been bought with the blood of Jesus, that we, like Christ, are precious to you, that we are chosen by you. Father, I pray for any who are with us today who have yet to put their faith and trust in you. Father, I pray that what they would hear from your word today is that if you 
a holy God are willing to save sinners like us, it's just like you to save them. It would be just like you to make yourself known and to reveal your love to them too. Father, we ask that there would not be a woman or a man in this room who leaves without knowing, without knowing beyond knowledge is what you offer, that we would experience your love. Father, I pray that to a woman and a man in this room, there would be opportunity for all of us at some point during the rest of this service to drop our heads and with gratitude give you thanks that you know us, that you've loved us, and that because of Jesus, we are not only forgiven, but we are being sanctified. We are being made the holy people that you have proclaimed that we are. Father, we do think about Katie and Marie and Avery who are with us today and Father, are preparing in their own hearts and in their families to be away at school. Father, I pray that you would lead these women to a congregation who will proclaim your mercy to them. That as they come face to face with their own sin and brokenness, that you, Jesus, would shine brighter in their hearts and before their eyes than their own need. Father, I pray that you would prepare a place for them to worship you, to bask in your glory, the character of a God who delights to show mercy, and that these women would grow in their faith Father, we pray that you would meet us today in likewise ways. That you would prepare us to walk out of these doors and to embrace the community and the vocation and our neighbors that you have called us to with the hope of the gospel. Jesus, we need to see you for that to be the case. We need you to be lifted up among us. We need to be encouraged. And so we praise you that you are more committed to us worshiping you than we are to seeking that worship. And so we ask for more than we could ask or imagine. Would you make us more and more like Christ? Single-hearted, not so divided as we are even now, as we come before you and pray. Father, you've called us into a world that is beautiful and yet broken. Jesus, you loved this world. Lord Jesus, would you give us your love for this world? Father, we come to your scripture and we seek to understand it. And as we have begun to say more and more here we come to your scripture to understand it, and so we stand underneath it. Father, we ask that you would allow your word to search us out and to lead us to repentance and faith. 
Father, thank you for the promise of the supper. Uh, We await that even as we hear your word proclaimed now. In Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, we're here in 1 Peter. It's a short letter. We're going to get it all this summer. Uh, This is my next to last opportunity to get to preach to you from this letter. And uh, I have to tell you, I think I've gotten the easier portion of this letter. I get to tell you about the hope, the living hope to which we've been called. And Nathan is going to get to tell you why we've been called a living hope and that it's such a big deal. Next week, we're going to hear about what it means to abstain from our passions. And then following that, we're going to hear about what it means to be submissive and to suffer as Christians. But before we get there, Peter is committed that we hear that we have been called to this gift, this gift of a living hope. First thing that we saw in the first chapter was this, that to hope is to take hold of the future in the present because the hope that we have been called to is rooted in the past. This is what it means for us to receive the gift of a living hope. We next saw in verses 13 through the, through the first couple of verses of chapter th- 2 that the demands that a living hope have on us, both of our minds and our hearts, right? The demands that are on our minds and our hearts because we have been given this living hope. We learned last week that because of this living hope, we have a new goal, the grace that is going to be revealed to us at the coming of Jesus. We have a new family, those who have received that grace, and we have a new fear. No more to fear the world in which we live, but with an awe-filled heart. A heart filled with wonder, fearing the Lord. And then also the demands on our hearts that we would love one another earnestly with a united heart and that we would long for that true spiritual milk that God gives us, his own affection for us. Today, in this third part of looking at the hope, Peter gives us the realities of a living hope. There are three statements in these verses that we're going to look at. And if you notice in these verses, none of them have to do with commands. There are no imperatives here. But there are three statements that we need to remember in order to live according to this living hope. Again, the theme of today is that there are three statements in these verses that we need to remember in order to live according to the living hope that we've been given. The first one is in verses 4 through 7, and this is what it says. Are you ready? It just says this. God has given all who believe in Jesus the greatest honor imaginable. That's the first statement of reality we need to remember. The second statement of reality is found in verses 7 and 8, and it says that the rejection of Jesus does not affect God's plan, but rather proves his point. That's a statement of reality that we need to live in. And then finally, in verses 9 and 10, this last statement is this, that our identity is defined for us so that God's character is made known. Think about that for a minute. It's so countercultural. Our identity is defined for us 
We do not define our own identity. And it is to the end that God's character would be made known. Three statements of reality that Peter reminds us of so that we can live according to a living hope. You see where we're going. Let's look at this first statement together. Look here in verses 4, 5, and 6. The first statement of reality that we need to remember is this, that the greatest honor imaginable is given to us as human beings as we are called living members of God's dwelling. Verse 4 starts with this language, right? It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. This is the greatest honor that could possibly be bestowed on humanity. To be a living member of God's very dwelling. You remember that Peter is the OG, the rock, right? Dwayne Johnson is not. Peter is. Peter was named the rock by Jesus himself. Peter was named the rock when they came off of, Mount, of, of the mountain of transfiguration, when they saw Jesus' glory. And then they came down and Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke on behalf of the disciples and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him and he said, your name is Simon, but no longer is your name Simon. It is Peter, which means Petros, which is rock. Because on this rock, your confession, I will build my church. Peter, the first to confess that Jesus is the Christ, Peter, the one who was nicknamed the rock, understands who the real rock is. He remembers Jesus in the temple in Matthew 21. When Jesus was speaking with the chief priests and the Pharisees, and he gave them the parable of the vineyard and how the tenants of the vineyard refused to give the owner of the vineyard the produce that was his. And so the owner of the vineyard sent others to ask for that produce, and they were killed and they were beaten. And then finally, he says in that parable in Matthew 21, he sent his own son, and the tenants of that vineyard killed his own son. And Jesus asked them, and he said, don't you remember? Have you never read in Scripture from Psalm 118, our call to worship that we just had, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, that this was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes? Jesus, Peter remembered when Jesus spoke that way in the temple proclaiming himself to be that cornerstone. But not just that. We read in Acts 4, when Peter was filled by the Holy Spirit, that he proclaimed that this Jesus, the one whom you have, been cruci who you have crucified, is the stone that was rejected by you, Peter says. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter is proclaiming to us who the cornerstone is. The cornerstone of a building would be that stone that 
is most precious and most chosen because by its perfect dimensions starts the very structure around which every stone would be impacted as it's laid against this cornerstone. And Jesus is that cornerstone. And Peter knows that. In fact, it might be the one thing that he always preaches about. If you had heard Peter preach over and over, you'd been like, I've heard this before, Peter. Jesus is the cornerstone. But Peter goes on to blow our minds with the honor to which we have been called. Because he says in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The honor that we have because of Jesus and being united to him is that we, like Christ, become living stones in that temple connected to the cornerstone, the stone around which the entire rest of the temple is to be built and is to be raised in its glory. In fact, Peter says, this is what God is doing in you even now, even as he adds more and more to your number. You all are becoming this temple in which God himself dwells. He says that we are not just the temple, but we are also the priesthood, and we are also called to offer sacrifices through Jesus Christ. Peter is reminding us that the image of the temple is not just being fulfilled in Christ, but it's being transformed to include all those who have come to faith in Christ. What was lost in the garden with Adam and Eve, the very garden that reflects the temple, is restored in Christ. Our sin has been dealt with. We are joined to Christ and like him living stones. What an honor. What an honor that the God who created the universe delights to dwell among us. This first statement of reality is that this is the greatest honor that we could possibly have. And why do we need to hear this? Why does Peter say we need to hear this? Because, like Peter, you and I look for honor in so many different places, don't we? We look for honor all over the place. We look to be recognized, to be valued, to find weight, to find significance. Biblically, that's called to have glory. But Peter is saying the most glorious thing about Jesus is that he's a living stone. And as we come to him, we, like living stones, are united to him. The reason we need to hear this is because we look for honor elsewhere. And Peter reminds us this is the place. The other reason we need to hear this is because we have to ask ourselves, what do we value about a corporate gathering of God's people? What do we value about coming here together and seeing each other and hearing from each other 
other image bearers who have entrusted themselves to Christ, who have confessed their need for Jesus, who have been redeemed and are built together, what do we value about corporate worship? Is the greatest value about corporate worship the reality that God is here among us? That's what Peter is drawing our attention to. Finally, do we take time as a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices? Sacrifices of thanksgiving that are spoken of throughout the Old Testament as we come before the Lord and realize you are our salvation. You have done it. You have accomplished it. Oftentimes we talk about what the goal of this worship service is. Is it for you to be impressed by the oration of the preacher? Is it for you to learn something new? Or is it for you to worship? To be brought into the presence of God and to thank Him and to give Him praise for what He has done, how He has redeemed us, and how He has promised to make us more and more like Jesus. This is the first statement of reality that Peter draws us to. The second statement of reality that we need to hear so that we will remember to live in light of the living hope. And listen, those of you who are leaving home need to listen to this. This is the second statement that Peter makes, and he makes it in verses 7 and 8. He says this, that the rejection of Jesus doesn't affect God's plan, but rather proves his point. This is verses 7 and 8. Look at what he says. I'll start with verse 6 as he takes this passage from Isaiah 28 and says, It stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone. I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And verse 7 says, So the honor is for you who to believe. Just what we talked about. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus himself foresaw this. Right again, we go back to Matthew 21. This is what Jesus said of those who rejected him in the temple. But it's not just Jesus that Peter learned to use this verse this way. Jesus took it from Psalm 118. It was in our call to worship. It is in the context of the reality that God is the one who saves sinners. And God is the one who has put a new foundation stone in Zion. Precious and chosen by him, Jesus the Lord has become our salvation, is so what Psalm 118 says. And Psalm 118 says it's the very stone that the builders rejected. Again, you heard it in Peter's sermon in Acts 4 that I just read to you. He said to those who had rejected Jesus, you, the builders who rejected Christ, he is this cornerstone, chosen and precious. Rejection of Jesus doesn't affect God's plan. Even for those who do not believe, the stone has still 
the cornerstone. Rejection is to be expected, but it proves God's point that that stone, that cornerstone, becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is where we get our word scandal. Something that happens that causes you to act contrary to how you know you should act. That results in unbelief. Because if you accepted Jesus, we have to accept the fact of our great need. Of our sin. Of our brokenness. There's a song that comes straight out of the 1980s because I come straight out of the 1980s written by this guy named Michael Card. And he actually says this. He says, It seems today the scandalon, which is the stone of offense, it seems today the scandalon offends no one at all. The image of Christ that we present can be stepped over, he says, Could it be, this is our question, could it be that we are like the others long ago? Will we ever learn that all who come must stumble? Why do we need to hear this second statement of reality from Peter? Because we have to ask ourselves, who is the Jesus that we proclaim? Is the Jesus that we proclaim a Jesus that can be stepped over? The Jesus that when you put him in front of a path can just be hurdled and life goes on? Or is the Jesus that we present the scandal that he is here in the scriptures? Because to present Christ is to admit and confess And also to point out human need. Our brokenness. Our neediness. That Christ alone can meet. Why do we need this? The first is, are we preaching a Jesus that we actually need? Do we need him, church? The question is... Have you stumbled over Christ? Has Christ stopped you in your tracks so that you would be able to say, without Christ, I have nothing. Before Christ, I was lost. But Jesus has made himself known. Why do we need to hear this? I want to ask you a question. Are you afraid to put the real Jesus in front of someone else. The real Jesus that would cause other human beings like you and me to stumble, that requires other human beings like you and me to stumble. This is the second statement of reality that we need. The final statement of reality that we need comes from verses 9 and 10. This is the third statement that Peter gives us that we need so that we will remember what it means to live in the reality of a living hope. And this is this. 
This is the one that I told you in the intro we really want to look at. Our identity is defined so that God's character is known. Our identity is defined for us so that, to the end that, for the purpose of God's character being known. Look at verse 9, what Peter says to them. But you are a chosen race. You are a, holy, a royal priesthood. But you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here's where I understand that statement. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But you are. Who are we? Who are you as a Christian? The first thing that comes from this passage is that we are definitely grouped together, aren't we? None of those definitions of our identity have us in a singularity. But in a group, together, this is who we are. Living stones being built together. This language of a chosen race makes you stop and go, wait a minute. Especially in today's day and age. But Peter takes this from Deuteronomy 10. He says, you are from a chosen genos. A chosen generation. A chosen common heritage. How in the, how in the world does Peter possibly say this? To a church that is known to have been mixed with Jews and Gentiles. What could possibly be the common heritage that they all share? The heritage of faith. The children of Abraham that Paul would later say, not all who descend from Abraham are children of Abraham, but those who have faith like Abraham are children of Abraham. That this common ancestry, that we are a chosen race, is a race of faith of those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. A royal priesthood from Exodus 19 a holy nation, as he calls Israel in Deuteronomy 7, people of his own possession. Again, Exodus 19. We see that as we are united to Christ, as we come to him, in the same way that the temple is not just fulfilled in Christ, but it's transformed in Christ, it's the same with God's people. That we are both fulfilled. God's people, that image is fulfilled in Christ, but it's transformed in Christ to contain people from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is an amazing thing. This is who we are. And we need to remember this if we're going to live in light of a living hope. And why? Well, verse 9 tells us, so that we may proclaim His excellencies. To proclaim God's excellencies is the idea that in a social context, so surrounded by other people, you would speak of God so that all eyes are riveted on Him. How often in a social context do you speak in such a way so that all eyes become riveted on you? I know that I do that. 
but to proclaim God's excellencies, that we would know our identity so that all eyes are on him, on his character, his work, his salvation, his glory, is why we have become what we have become. Peter says we need to remember this so that we might live in light of this living hope. He drives it home with verse 10. And he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You could listen to this and go, that's an amazing statement. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. These folks who heard this language from Peter in the very first century and the church from then on have never been from one ethnicity. Never. It's been people from all over the world who were not a people, but now are called a people. And you go, that's amazing. Or you could go on and say, once they had not received mercy, but now they have received mercy. And we see how the gospel of God's mercy defines us for who we are. But it's even more amazing when we realize that the language that Peter uses comes out of the prophet Hosea. Go back this week. Hosea is a short book. You can read the whole thing. And do you know what will shock you about Hosea? Hosea, the prophet of the Old Testament, through whom God speaks to Israel, is commanded to marry a prostitute. A prostitute with whom he has children. And one of the children's name is not my people. Now, I don't know what your middle name is. And I don't know if you're ashamed of your middle name. If you wonder, why in the world do I have the middle name that I have and you don't like hearing it in public? But what if your name was not my people? What if that were your name? What about your name being No Mercy? Because that was the other name of one of Hosea's children. And in fact, Hosea's wife left him, went back, and practiced prostitution again. And God said to Hosea, go get that woman again. And take her back as your wife. God is using language here that speaks to our hearts that wander. And Peter is saying you can't lose sight of who you are and what God has done in your life. This third statement that we need to hear is that our identity is defined so that God's character is made known. Once you were not a people, Come on, every one of our stories starts that way. Once upon a time, right? Children, don't you love it when your folks sit down with you and they start, hey, once upon a time, and you lean forward. You go, what are you about to tell me? Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you shared Jesus with somebody and you started this way? Hey, once upon a time, I was a person who was completely devoid of faith. Once upon a time, I had turned away from the God who created me. Once upon a time, I had sought my identity from something other than God. To use the radical language of the Old Testament, once upon a time, I was a prostitute. But the God who counted me precious and who chose to set his love upon me 
redeemed me. God saved me and showed me mercy. Children, do you know what we pray for you? We pray for you that there's never a day where you don't know the saving power of Jesus. So how in the world could that be your story? It could be your story about this. You know, I come from a long line of human beings who sought to find their value apart from God. I come from a long line of human beings who are tempted to find identity for themselves and for their own glory. And by God's grace, he allowed me from the day that I first remembered to hear of his love for me, that he would capture my heart. And yet I still tend to find my worth and value in other places. But this God who chose me, who deemed me precious, called me his own. Once not a people, now God's possession. Why do we need this? My question is this for you. What do you proclaim to people about God? What do you proclaim in your words? You, you tell your friends about Jesus, right? You share Christ with those who you live life with, right? Because your identity, who, who we are is for the reason that Show his excellencies to a world that worships the emptiness of idols that we ourselves are tempted to worship. But Peter tells us that these statements, these three statements that we need to hear so that we might live according to the living hope that has been gifted to us are simply these statements. God has given all who believe in Jesus the greatest honor imaginable as members of his living dwelling. Rejection of Jesus doesn't affect God's plan, but rather it proves his point. And finally, our identity is defined so that God's character might be made known. Peter is setting us up so that we can hear the difficult words that he's calling us to, even next week as he says, therefore, don't live according to the passions of your flesh. And in the weeks to follow, as Peter talks about us as Christians living in submission and us as Christians as living in the midst of suffering, but it's from the context, the reality of what it means to live in a living hope. We feed off of that hope now. Will you come and eat with me?